I protected it like it was my child. I felt this awesome responsibility that I still I still feel this way about it. I definitely felt like a caretaker. I got it home. I covered it up so the light wouldn't affect it. I became overprotective of this photograph. These individuals from history have left these objects behind, intimate objects. They sat for these photographs. They did it for a purpose. They did it to remember who they were, where they were, what they were doing. These images had meaning. In our previous episode of Constant Wonder, I leaned on some famous words from William Faulkner. The past is never dead. It's not even past. The Civil War is still very much with us, still not past, for one very good reason at least. It was the first major war to be heavily documented using photography. Thousands upon thousands of photos were taken of soldiers and civilians, and behind each photo is the life of an actual person or group of people, people with hopes and fears and humor and loyalties and friendships and love. And I'm with Faulkner. These figures in these photos are not gone. They're just hanging out there in that rectangular black and white world, maybe just a little like those paintings in Harry Potter, waving, maybe winking at us, maybe warning us. I can imagine they're even peering at us here in the future, wondering who will remember them. I feel a connection that transcends time. At some point after they left the earth, these images are what we have left to remember them. And I think you can kind of feel the energy when you see those images. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. My guest in this episode is Ron Coddington. He's a Civil War historian who collects and uncovers the stories behind Civil War photos. Ron got the Civil War photo bug on a family outing when he was 14 years old. It is a spring day. We're at the flea market. There are these big, solid wood tables that are painted with a bright green paint. All of the dealers, the tables are crowded with dealers who have brought out all of their antiques and other items to sell. I come up to one of the tables. It's a pile of albums of old photo albums, the bindings had long wasted away. And it was a mound of album pages. And towards the top of the pile is someone who I thought, this is a, this is a soldier, it's a Civil War soldier. And by that time, I was interested in the Civil War. The idea of that image being there and for sale was astounding to me that it could just be there. All of that, with all of that excitement and enthusiasm, I was afraid to spend $4 to buy it. That was a lot of money for a a young (laughs) newspaper boy. Uh, So I go back to the car. Uh, My parents are in the car. They're ready to go. Um, My my brother is in the back seat, and I remember getting into the car. I had one, it was a station wagon, uh, it's 1974. It's an Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, and uh, I have one foot in the car. I'm about to put the other foot in, and my brother, Mike, looks at me and he says, you're not going to buy that? Unbeknownst to me, he, he had been watching me 
uh, while I was hovering around mesmerized at the table. And um, I looked at him and I said, yeah, I got to have it. And so I went back and I, the image was still there. I bought it and came back to the car and it changed my life. Is this the kind of thing where you you hop back in the station wagon and you just kind of toss the photo down or are you cradling it in your hands on the way home? Oh, I protected it like it was my child. I felt this awesome responsibility that I still I still feel this way about it. I didn't have the words at the time to describe how I felt, but I came to realize that I think the best word is caretaker. And someone else says use the term keeper of history. But I definitely felt like a caretaker of this image. And I got it home. I protected it. I covered it up so the light wouldn't affect it. I became overprotective of this photograph. And I studied it much like I was, I, of course, I drew the person in the photograph uh, because that was my habit at the time. But then I also became interested to see what was he wearing? What were the uniform, the details of his uniform? And then on the album itself, on the page, was written Uncle George Garlic. So I also had his name. And on the back of the photograph was the imprint from the photographer's studio that was in Chicago. So I had all of this evidence wrapped up in this little photograph, and it was mine to protect. And it wasn't just a picture of somebody named George Garlick that began to haunt Ron Coddington in a friendly sort of way. It was Uncle George Garlick, according to the photo, and that little detail meant that this particular George was part not just of a family... Not just that he had a name George Garlic, but that he had an extended family, probably somebody who affectionately styled him uncle. That's a tiny detail, but it has significant implications. Now, here's something Ron soon began to notice about his photos. They weren't just point-and-shoot images captured by a camera to become family keepsakes. In their mode of production, it was quite clear that they had been fashioned to function as collectibles. You know, like baseball cards, except with images of regular folk, not VIPs, stars, or celebrities, necessarily. These photos all followed a very similar pattern, Ron observed. They seemed to be an instance of a phenomenon that had gone viral. Here's the story. Like photography itself, a craze began in France and quickly jumped the Atlantic. This coincided with the era of the Civil War. And in Victorian times, this fad was so widespread that people began to call it cardomania. These are the, the little cards that are about the size of a baseball card. And they would often have the individual's name written in script. And so it became a joke. Uh, these photographs are getting so popular, the next thing you know, they're going to put them on visiting cards. And they did. And uh, a, a French photographer came up with a, a multi-lensed camera that could take anywhere from four to eight images at one time uh, on a glass negative, and then prints. You could make a print from this big glass negative, cut it into four or eight pieces, put each of those individual portrait pieces on a piece of cardstock, and then you have a visiting card with a photograph on it, or, uh, and I'm going to slaughter the French, uh, the carte de visite. 
So with Cardomania, this goes beyond just the keepsake of say, oh, I've got Uncle George Garlic here and he's related to me. At some point, the sensation of this is such that people all across the country were were really into it, I guess. Yes, uh, they really embrace the idea of being able to get your photograph and to get multiple copies of it. You can get a dozen prints uh, of that photograph and hand it out to all your friends. This becomes the social media of the 1860s. It's Facebook in the 1860s. Everybody wants to be seen. You have hundreds of images stacking up in people's homes. They go out and buy photo albums. The photo albums are invented for them. They begin to collect these albums. So they are the first collectors, and they're feeding off of this idea of the mass production of photography, the inexpensive cost of these photographs, and the ability to share with individuals, to share with your friends. So this explodes by 1863, 1864, Carte de visite images or card photographs are being referred to as the sentimental greenbacks of American society. They, they are firmly entrenched in the popular culture. And when you think about the social media going on today, there's so much in common with that. And yet social media, that's kind of digital and these things are more tangible. And so I, I'm wondering if this is a little bit more like having a baseball card in your head or a collection or maybe even Pokemon. Yeah, I think I think it is. There, There is something getting to that, the physicality of holding that album and being to open those pages and look at the images. And you're having that experience either by yourself, with your family, with your friends. It's an event. It's almost like a bit of a game to look at these photographs of individuals. Imagine that you're opening an album and the album was created by the person sitting next to you and they're describing the contents of the album. And as you're turning the pages, you might see a soldier and maybe the soldier is the person next to you's husband. And she's talking about this photograph of her husband. And on the opposite page is Abraham Lincoln or General Grant, or if you're in the South, Robert E. Lee or Jefferson Davis, all of a sudden you have a dynamic where you're on the same plane. Your husband or someone you know is on the same plane with the president or the nation's most well-known and most successful general. There's a real power in that too. You're, you're collapsing the social structure and being on the same plane with the powerful the successful or the wealthy. This is exactly the dynamic we encountered in our previous episode about Washington's hair. Here, the two physical objects are photos adjacent to each other in an album, a photo of a president, the other of a common soldier. In the story of Hamid Ahmed, it's a black American holding a lock of George Washington's hair conspicuously next to his own. Two citizens from opposite ends of the power spectrum. They are, symbolically at least, fellow citizens. It's worth going back to catch our previous episode if you haven't heard it yet. Here's a little clip that will either jog your memory or whet your appetite. There's all kinds of evidence that, that Hamid Ahmed, uh, in brandishing Washington's hair, that he literally, I mean, it sounds 
that's unbelievable, but but the evidence is there, that he brandished Washington's hair in juxtaposition with his own hair. I think the evidence is that he was saying, I helped him win the revolution. I am, in effect, a founding father myself. The Hamid Ahmed story is but one of many that Keith Butler has to tell about Washington's hair. But returning now to the Civil War era, Ron Coddington had caught the Civil War bug from an early age, and that for him was incurable. It was a hobby that consumed him, and ever since it's really provided him with a lifetime of enjoyment and reflection and study, as well as a sense of duty. This is a duty that he has taken on personally, but it's something shared by many other like-minded people, a kind of compulsion to keep the flame of memory alive for those people whose visages, whose faces have been caught by photography in some fleeting moment. Some of the images that Ron has collected are studio portraits, others taken out in the field. There were a number of enterprising photographers, documentarians of the Civil War era, who did booming business on the side, it appears, producing mementos for soldiers to send to their loved ones back home. A prime example of how a photographic career evolved right along with the war is found in the history of one Matthew Brady. You also have Matthew Brady, for example, and other photographers who are beginning to realize that the war is going to be not a three-month affair, as many folks initially thought. This is going to be a long, drawn-out, this is going to be a bloody, multiple-year war, uh, and there's a responsibility to document it. So Matthew Brady is one of the leaders He goes from being a portrait photographer of celebrities to a photojournalist of war practically overnight. In 1861, when the war begins, Matthew Brady has this realization that, okay, we need to start recording what's happening here. His first foray into sending teams of photographers out into the field is in the metropolitan Washington, D.C. area. Practically overnight, the city becomes a fortress town. They begin erecting forts around the city. You have tens of thousands of Union soldiers who are coming into into town to defend the capital. And Matthew Brady's impulse is to capture this activity. So he sends his photographers out to all of these new camps that are being constructed, this ring of camps that are flowering up overnight, practically. His photographers start taking images. They start capturing the soldiers. They start capturing the camp scenes. And they sell those images back to the soldiers. Uh, it's, it's like you have an audience for your photographs. A regiment of a thousand soldiers, Brady could send one of his photographers into a camp, take images of a bunch of the soldiers, and then sell copies of the photographs to them. This first series, this first foray that Brady makes into the Washington, D.C. environs, he calls it the Illustrations of Camp Life series. He prints up these small cards, again, about the size of a visiting card, and has the Illustrations of Camp Life name imprinted on it, along with his name, Brady. This all happens before 
the Battle of Antietam, before the Battle of Gettysburg. This is early in the war. Martin Clark is one of these men who is photographed. And there's an image of him with his jacket on. He has his cap, which has a waterproof cover on it to protect him from the rain. He's standing, full standing with his hand against a tree. There is a tent behind him and some other buildings in the background. Uh, And here he is, Martin Clark from a New York regiment. And he comes to Washington, one of the first defenders of Washington, D.C., He's here in April, May, June, into the summer of 1861. And so what we're seeing here is not only a soldier, we're seeing someone who left behind his wife and his family and went with the other folks in his town and marched off because the Union was in trouble, the capital was being threatened, and it was time to rally to save the country. So you have a photograph. I'm not sure if this is yours. Almira Newcomb McNaughton Lockwood Fails. A lot of names there. Yes. (laughs) This is somebody who, after Abraham Lincoln is elected, she gets involved in her own way in the Civil War. Yes, it is in my collection. The reason she has such a long name is she was married three husbands. She her first two husbands died. She marries a third time, settles in Washington, D.C. Had the war not happened, um, she would have lived her life running a boarding house. When uh, South Carolina secedes, she reacts in a way that causes great alarm to her neighbors. She begins gathering cloth and lint to make bandages. And she tells folks, there's a war coming, and this is going to be a horrible, bloody war, and we need to be prepared now. Her neighbors are maybe a bit dumbstruck, a bit uh, shocked or awed, a range of emotions. Some folks question her sanity. Of course, she proves to be ahead of most people in terms of her thinking. She goes on to be a nurse and brings care to uncounted numbers of sick and wounded men during the war. So you obtain this photograph. You are able to find the name of the person. It's probably identified on the card itself. And then you start doing research to find out who she was? Yeah, and it's a wonderful photograph. And to me, her photograph, it's the quintessential nurse. So many nurses that I've read about, they carry baskets of food. And she's posed here with two baskets filled with, it looks like bread and condiments. And her name is written on the back very prominently in beautiful period ink. When I started to research her, I came in contact with two very important books that were written just a couple of years after the war in 1867. And they're collections of profiles of the women who served both as paid and volunteer nurses during the war. It's sort of that first, um, it's that first draft of history. And uh, the authors canvassed writers and they canvassed women that they knew that had gone off to war to contribute information. And so what results are these two beautiful history books. Without them, 
so much about the experiences of these women who served as nurses, I think, would have been lost. So an image of somebody like Almira, this nurse, who got involved by her own choice, anticipating what might happen, this kind of a photograph might be shared by more than just relatives then, you're saying. She's kind of a, a celebrity of sorts. Yeah, I, I would probably think of her as something of a local celebrity. Uh, if you were to sort of dig into her story and begin to find out about how popular she was in the wards of the local hospitals in Washington, D.C., it's pretty easy to imagine that the grateful men who are far away from home and they're recovering from illness or injury, they think of these women as their mothers or their sisters, and they want a keepsake. Uh, and here we have uh, photographs that, in many cases, are documented to have been given by the nurses to the soldiers who wanted to remember, in some cases, the woman who saved their life. I mentioned earlier how the American Civil War was the first major war to be heavily documented using photography. Well, the War of 1812 and, of course, the American Revolution, well, these predated this technology, in spite of which one of Ron Coddington's other favorite photos depicts an aged veteran of the War of Independence. This is a stunning bridge, I think, in the photographic record of our nation's history. Two photographers in Hartford, Connecticut, in 1864, get this idea to document the last survivors of the revolution. And as the Moore brothers, the photographers, go out to find these men and photograph them, they only find six that are alive. And Daniel Waldo is one of the six surviving pensioners in 1864. Waldo was uh, captured in the Revolutionary War, becomes a minister, and in 1856... When he is in his 90s, the Congress is so polarized that they cannot decide on a candidate for the chaplain of the House of Representatives. Waldo becomes the compromise candidate because everybody can agree you can't find anything wrong with the Revolutionary War veteran in 1856. So here's Waldo. He comes in. He serves his time as chaplain. And I, got, I have to tell you, it's just a quick side note. When I was researching Waldo, I went to the, the website for the chaplain of the U.S. House of Representatives, and I go down the list. There's a list of all the individuals who have served in this role, and Daniel Waldo is not there. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is a travesty. My man, Daniel Waldo, is not there. And I came to find out that that particular Congress in 1856, they abolished the chaplain's position for the first session of Congress. There was an outcry, and they brought it back for the second session. So Daniel Waldo was the chaplain for the second session of Congress in 1856. That detail didn't make it onto the list. And so I wound up contacting an email campaign to lobby, <laughs> lobby the chaplain's uh, office to add his name to the list on the website. 
He became my cause for a while. I, I, I eventually prevailed, and lo and behold, you can find his name now on the list. <laughs> And I'm not, I'm not alone. Uh, there's, a, there's a dedicated community of collectors and the, you, you encounter the same, the, that same desire to want to preserve and want to remember and want to find out who these are. You want to find out uh, if they're unidentified, if the image is not signed, you want to find out who they are. There's just, a, there's a desire to get and find out who this person was and why are they here and why do I have their photograph? So if people in the day of Abraham Lincoln and Daniel Waldo were taking images and there's a, I'm looking at a, a copy right now of this Daniel Waldo photo. If people were drawing inspiration then from this revolutionary war survivor, what about you? Do you find inspiration yourself looking back at these civil war photos? I do. In some ways, since I was a kid, they, they shaped my character. Or I should say, I've modeled my behavior on what I've learned about them. They're part of who I am. I, I carry those experiences with me in some ways as if they were my own. <laughs> I don't know if that's healthy. <laughs> but when I realize what they, in difficult times in the history of the nation and the history of the world, what they have done. How can you not be inspired by that? Ron Coddington is a Civil War historian. He collects and uncovers the stories behind Civil War photos. Our thanks to Ron for sharing his passion with us. Also to Keith Butler, who was heard in the first of this pair of episodes in which we have explored the materiality of memory. Butler is author of George Washington's Hair, How Early Americans Remembered the Founders. This episode of Constant Wonder was produced by Eric Schultzka and Daniel McDonald, with help from Parker Schmidt and the BYU Broadcasting Sound Design Team. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. BYU Radio.